Good morning. Happy Advent season. It's, um, it's always a joy to preach and to bring before the people of God the Word of God, but this particular season, as we all know, is meant to stir within us this hopeful anticipation. And this is what Advent is for. It's to increase our longing, knowing that it will be fulfilled in the light of the Son of God. And so it's a joy-filled filled anticipation. It, it's not meant to produce anxiety or worry. And yet we all, well, a lot of us feel those things during this season for whatever reason. It might be reminders of loss or the thoughts of what could be and what has not yet been. We often have expectations of what Christmas should be and what memories we should be making, and yet sometimes uh, none of those come to fruition. And so the season comes and goes, and even as one who... Um, I remember every year as a kid, the joy of Christmas morning, my mother um, would always make a little cake, and we'd sing happy birthday to Jesus, but um, the next day thinking, well, it's over, life goes on, and, and yet, that's not really why, um, the day itself is not why we celebrate it, but Christmas really is the foundation for everything, because we see God incarnate. And so as we look specifically in the text today, I, I want us to just try to imagine ourselves in the place of the first hearers of this word, the first readers, if you will. They were given the word verbally, but I want us to imagine us being Isaiah's audience and the hope-filled expectation of who this son would be. In particular... We're looking at his specific name as Mighty God. If you haven't been with us yet for our Advent series, we're preaching through Isaiah 9, verses 6 through 7, and every week we're looking at a particular title given to this promised son. And so today, we're seeing this promised son as Mighty God. And so, to give you a, a quick backstory, I know Ben introduced some of this already, but I like to make sure we're all on the same page. Israel is in, a, is in a predicament. At this point in their history, they've long been separated into two kingdoms. Because of Solomon's failure, Solomon, the, the son of David, because of his failure and then the subsequent failures of his sons, the kingdom has been divided, and there are two kingdoms that constitute all of Israel. You have the northern kingdom, which is just simply called Israel, and then the southern kingdom called Judah. And at this point in time, the Assyrian Empire has already sacked the northern kingdom. And so there, are, there, are, there is a remnant in Judah, and there is a threat that Assyria will attack Jerusalem. And so this promise of this son, this deliverer, comes in the midst of Judah's family already being in exile and an impending attack on the very heart of Judah, and that is this, the, the city of Zion, Jerusalem. And so in the midst of all this, Isaiah delivers this word. And so we have to understand that this word came to a people who were fearful, who were frightened, 
and who did not know what tomorrow would look like. And some of you feel those same things to a different degree, of course, surrounding Christmas. And yet, we know in the fullness of time who this son is. And we see this in the Gospels. We see Matthew saying this son is, is Jesus the Christ. And we know he is as such. And so today, this, this message is looking at Jesus as mighty God. He is the promised son, promised by the prophet and given to his people as mighty God. And so let's stand as we read God's word this morning, if you're able. The prophet writes, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Amen. You may be seated. And so, as we consider this particular title, we've already looked at Wonderful Counselor, as we consider this particular title, Mighty God, I want us to view three characteristics or things that pertain to this name in light of Jesus as this promised son. And so if you're a note taker, I've made it uh, hopefully memorable. Um, three D's, okay? Deliverance, deity, and dominion. Deliverance, deity, and dominion. And we're going to see how this title, and we're going to unpack what this title means, and see how Christ, the promised son, brings us deliverance, he is deity, and he has dominion. And so, uh, let us pray and dive in. <clears throat> Father, we praise your name. You are worthy of all honor, all worship, all glory. And we thank you that you are faithful to your people. You chose to reveal yourself in various covenants throughout history, all culminating and all having their fulfillment in the new covenant where we have seen Jesus, your son. We know that he is the image of the invisible God and that in seeing Christ, we have seen you. We thank you that you have loved us from the very beginning and your promise is to save us to the uttermost, all because of the person and work of Christ, your son, the second person of the triune God. Lord, we pray today that you would open the eyes of our hearts and mind to behold you, to see your grace and your glory in ways perhaps we never have, and to simply worship you today. I pray that you would stir within us that we would rejoice at the coming of the Son, that we would choose thanksgiving, we would choose joy, and we would choose celebration because you were worthy. And we have our everything in you. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for the promise of your coming. We know you have come and you will come again. And thank you for your spirit that illuminates your word and your will to us. 
please be honored in our midst, and would you rule and reign in us and among us. Amen. All right. So this son, this promised son, the one to be born, his name shall be called Mighty God. And at first, we might look at this and think, well, that's, that's self-explanatory. I don't need really to know more than that. We get it. The Son will be God. But it's interesting. It's very interesting, actually. And so we're going to break that down. And I want us to see this in light of salvific history, what this means. And so mighty God. The first time we see mightiness mentioned as a descriptor of God in uh, in the Bible is actually in God's deliverance of Israel from Egypt. In Exodus 3, in Exodus 3, starting in verse 19, the Lord actually says to Moses, he's already promised, he's already set apart Moses, and he's called him to the task of leading Israel out of the bondage of Egypt. And he says this to Moses, he says, but I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And so this term mightiness or might in light of God always is associated with the deliverance of his people. Always. In fact, throughout the Torah, which is the first five books, the law, right? The first five books of the, of the Old Testament. Throughout we see mightiness always described in his hand because he delivers his people. Through, it's something that, that, that was given to them as remembrance. It's like, look, the Lord has delivered you with his mighty hand. And so for this son to be called mighty God means he will be our deliverer. And elsewhere in the scriptures, God's mightiness is always associated with his deliverance. Beyond the Torah, throughout the Old Testament, and in the New, his mightiness is associated with the deliverance of his people. And that deliverance happens at the judgment of the wicked, okay? So even when you read a book like Revelation, when judgment is being continually poured out, it is always for the deliverance of his covenant people. And so, but what's in a name, right? What's in a name? The Hebrew word used for mighty in this title, okay, so specifically in this title, is Gibor. And it's really important that we track with, these, with uh, this little section because it changes the meaning of everything. This title, mighty, specifically means manly or warrior, hero or champion. In fact, it's particular to, to man. It's particular to man. It's not usually used as a descriptor or is in association with deity. Whereas the mightiness typically attributed to God and his mighty hand is a different word altogether. It's hazak, which means firm or hard or strong, heavy, severe. You see this weight to it like it's unstoppable. Much like God's glory, the word really means heaviness, weightiness, gravity. And so title given to the son is not the same might as that described by the delivering hand of God but in other words you could read it as warrior God his name will be warrior God 
or hero God or my favorite champion God. Champion God. So, what is, so why does this matter? What does it mean? Well, when, when we consider the uniqueness of the name, we now understand that the Son comes as the hero, the mighty God-man. He is God in flesh who saves his people. Therefore, now we have to understand this, the Son delivers his people in a way that is unique to his manliness. Okay? Meaning, in times past, God delivered his people through mighty supernatural deeds, but the Son will save his people through mighty manly deeds. It's categorically different. And we know this. We've seen, we've seen in, throughout the history through the scriptures that God has redeemed his people with his mighty hand using supernatural deeds and acts. The plagues in Egypt, the Red Sea, requiring the simplest of acts from Israel to defeat their enemies. It's always been this supernatural show of power. And yet the Son somehow is going to save his people through a mannish act, if you will, an act of man. How could this be? How could this be? Who is this hero God? Who is this champion for his people? Just consider that. He's called mighty God. And how he is mighty is portrayed as categorically different than what we've already seen in the scriptures. And so, being the, the original audience, thinking, who is this son? Who is he? That he's a warrior God? And that he will rule and reign forever? Who is he? This mighty God will be Israel's ultimate victor. Consider this. He will be the truer and better Joshua because he will lead his people into an eternal promised land. He will be the truer and better Gideon for he will destroy idols permanently and will defeat Israel's enemies for good. He will be the truer and better Samson because by his last breath, he will deliver a fatal blow to the enemy of God's people. But unlike Samson, he will raise to life, never to die again. And in doing so, he will defeat death itself. He is the truer and better David because he will be the ultimate shepherd king who forever leads his people in righteousness and justice. This is in the name. This is the promised son, mighty God. And he does all this, and we, we can't miss this. This is also in the name. He does all this because as mighty God, he loves his people. He loves his people. From early in the law, we see the connection between God's loving kindness and his covenant faithfulness to his people and the display of his mightiness within Consider Deuteronomy 7, starting in verse 6. For you are a people holy to the Lord. That means you're set apart. You're marked by God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. 
It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all the peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. The promised son will deliver his people because he loves them. And he will display his faithfulness to them through his redeeming love. He does not save a nation that he hates. Understand this. He does not save a people he abhors. In fact, he rejects such people. But he actually delights in saving a nation that he loves. In turn, this salvation-bringing love actually reveals and magnifies his mightiness. This is what it means in Zephaniah when the prophet writes, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Do you see this? This promised son as mighty God delights to save his people. This is Christmas. This is the coming of the Son, and we know He has come. But this is for us to believe today, church, that the Lord is in our midst. He is a mighty one who will save. He rejoices over us with gladness. He quiets us by His love, and He exults over us with loud singing. He saves us in delight and he delights in saving us it's all for him and it brings him great joy and so when we consider whatever pains or burdens or sins you know are plaguing you or you perhaps feel make you unworthy of this worthy king we have to understand that he didn't pick us because of us but he chooses us for his namesake and he delights over us not because anything we have done or not done but rather because he is faithful to his promises because his promises are born on him and he's faithful to his promises because he's faithful to himself and so this mighty God delivers his people and his mightiness is displayed not just in his saving mighty hand but in also the hand that lovingly holds us and keeps us. He doesn't just stop at saving us from our immediate enemies, but he truly saves us to the uttermost. He breaks the bonds that have held us. He breaks the bonds that have entangled us since our ancient parents fell in the garden. He comes to deliver us from darkness and death. This is the very word at the start of Isaiah 9. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. He is the light himself, this son. 
And in might, he breaks through the darkness and reveals the glory of his power and his might. The glory of his strength as he saves a people for his name's sake. He is mighty God. The son who is called mighty God is our deliverer. And he delivers us in his manliness. But it doesn't just stop there. He is also deity. As the name implies, mighty God. But we need to unpack this too. As we've already established, he's God in flesh. He's God in flesh. But I want us now to look at his godliness and what that entails. We know that his might is displayed in his manliness, but in who he is and his identity, we must now look to his godliness. In the ancient, in the ancient Near East, um, it, it was common uh, for people to acknowledge the existence of uh, all kinds of gods. This was common in the, in the Hebrew mind. To them, the gods of the nations were real spiritual beings. That's why the call to worship the Lord their God was so specific and unique and to consider the Lord their God one. Meaning, he, because he's God of gods, there's no one like him. Therefore, he is the one true God. But everyone had a functioning belief that there were other spiritual entities in their midst. This is why, besides just the hardness of their hearts, why it was so easy for Israel to be caught up in pagan idolatry because they really believed in their existence right we we see idolatry happening in our culture and in our midst but it's categorically different with the exception of neo-spiritualism happening in our midst in Brattleboro and in New England uh, most people in the west don't believe in anything spiritual so their idolatry is their love of self their worship of them as king as the captain of their own ship it's just as heinous but it looks appropriate for our day and age no one questions it but in the ancient near east no one tried i mean they, they looked to the world always through a supernatural lens and so it was so, so common and easy for them to say well let's start worshiping baal he uh, might provide some fertility to our crops and to our wives and he's asked us to make some sacrifices, our, our kids, I think we'll do it. That seems so bizarre to us, but it's not that different than what people today are doing. Well, it's inconvenient for me to have a child, so I guess I'll just sacrifice it. And so we have to understand that the son, as mighty God, is an assertion that he is God of gods. Lord of lords. He is the one true God. In Deuteronomy 4, God questions the people. He says, For ask now of the days that are past, which were before you since the day that God created man on the earth, and ask from one end of heaven to the other whether such a great thing as this has ever happened or was ever heard of. Did any people ever hear the voice of a God speaking out of the midst of the fire as you have heard and still live? 
Or has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation by trials, by signs, by wonders, and by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and by great deeds of terror, all of which the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes? To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God. There is no other besides him. It's almost as if Yahweh is mocking the idea that other gods are even really gods. He is. He's saying, have you ever seen this before? What other deity has pulled a nation from within a nation and performed these signs and wonders in your very midst? It's reminiscent of the prophet Elijah, if you're familiar with this story, 1 Kings 18. There were pagan worshipers in the midst of Israel and they had been worshiping a false god because of an evil king and Elijah sets up a test and the test is let's both build altars of fire and let's ask our respective gods to bring fire to the altar and he says furthermore I'll pour water on mine because I trust in the God of Abraham Isaac and Jacob that much and he lets the others go first. And of course, nothing happens. Nothing happens. They're praying, and they even begin to perform sacrificial vows. They're cutting themselves and all sorts of things to invoke the power of their false god. And what does Elijah do? He appropriately mocks them. He says, oh, is your god on the toilet? Did he miss the memo? Can he hear you? Oh, that's right. He's not there. He's not there. And of course, Elijah prays unto Yahweh and fire comes down and ignites not only his altar, but the one next to it. The point being, it's ridiculous to think that there is any other besides the one true God. He has revealed himself over and over and over again, faithfully saving his people and delivering them from the hand of their enemies. And this promised son is God in the flesh who will be the victor of Israel, who will be the savior of his people. And he will work a salvation that is eternal because he is God of gods and Lord of lords. And we know this must be the case, that it must be God incarnate because any good Jew would know the Shema Listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Therefore, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. There's only one God. There's only one. And so for this son to be given the title Mighty God invokes this idea that God is once again with us. That's what Emmanuel means, God with us. He's here. He's here. God's returning to his people. Understand the weight of that. This son won't just be another angel, okay, another messenger. He won't even be a non-incarnate representation of, of the Lord because that's happened in Israel's past. The Lord speaks with Abraham in this mysterious fashion before Sodom is destroyed. And we see the angel of the Lord speaking to Joshua after they enter into the land. And we see 
even Melchizedek being a mysterious figure. We see all these interesting messengers, representatives of the Lord that very well are non-incarnate representations of himself. And yet this son won't be just that. He will indeed be God incarnate. It's unique. It's different. This is why Paul writes to the Colossians. He says he is the image of the invisible God. He has taken what could not be seen. And because he has took on flesh, we see him in all his beauty, in all his majesty, in all his glory. He is mighty God. And without the incarnation, he would not be mighty. Because his might is in his manliness. Do you see that? It's amazing. This changes everything. This changes everything. Israel has always understood God to be with them in a sense. Typically through the various means of mediation, right? The Lord was with them through Moses. We see in Psalm 77 that it says the Lord saved a people through the hand of Moses. It's amazing. It's like, wow, the Lord saved them through Moses. And there's always been a mediator, always. So we see Moses as a mediator. We even see the law itself as a mediator because it reveals the character and the holiness of God to the people. It's the written word of God. The Ark of the Covenant, which is the dwelling place, but it's shrouded behind the veil. He's not really among the people. And even the priesthood, they are mediators of God to man and man to God. But he's hidden. He's hidden. But this, this promised son somehow, somehow, will be God with us. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. It's amazing. It's amazing. And this is why we celebrate this is why we long, we long for the coming of the Son. And we celebrate that He has come and He will come again. As God incarnate, as the promised Son who fulfills all things, we know every promise of God is ours in Him because He is the fulfillment of all the promises. Can you imagine the expectation and the hope surrounding this prophecy to the people in Isaiah's day? If you have been keeping up with the narrative of Scripture, there's this, I mean, it's very important for us to, to dive deep into Scripture and, and really tease out things and, and understand the details, but I often encourage people, sometimes ju just read. Pull the Bible back a little bit and read large swaths at a time and understand the story that's happening because if you look at the story several things are happening there's all these promises given with cliffhangers and so faithful Jews have been expecting for centuries the fulfillment of several of these promises they're looking and waiting for the promised seed of the woman who would crush the serpent's head they're looking and waiting for the prophet who truly succeeds Moses that was promised by God. They're looking for 
the lamb to be provided as the sacrifice on Mount Moriah. They're looking for the righteous and rightful heir to the throne of David. They're all waiting for this. And here he is. Here he is. At last, they see a clear picture of who the son would be. They're still waiting. We know he wasn't born in their time. They're still waiting. And yet, they get this beautiful glimpse of who he is. And we see that by the miraculous, this son would be born, given of a virgin, and he would be God with us. This is the first of this promise ever being given. The, the, the awaited Messiah, the awaited seed, they never knew would actually be God incarnate. But this son is Emmanuel. He is mighty God. Truly, this promised son is God of gods, Lord of lords, and will dwell among his people forever. He is deity. And lastly, I want us to consider this. As mighty God, this Son, who is Jesus, will have dominion forever. Dominion is somewhat of a scary word to people. Well, it can be. It shouldn't be, though. Dominion, it just comes from uh, the Latin domus, which means home. So... Um, to have dominion means you have rightful authority over your domain, okay? For a wife to have domestic duties simply means there are home duties, domestic, home, domain, dominion. They're all related. So the question then is if this son has dominion, how far does it stretch? How wide does it go? Where? Where? will he be exercising this control? Over what realm, what sphere does he have dominion? The text is clear. The dominion of this son will not just be over Jerusalem, Judah, or even Israel to the north, but he will have dominion over all the earth. All the earth. And if you think, well, that's not really right there in the text. It's implied because... The throne of David has been promised for years and years that it would stretch over all the kingdoms of the earth and that the throne of David would be an eternal throne that all the earth would recognize. And so we see in verse 7, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. You see, someone is going to rule. Someone is going to reign. The question is who? This is why there are wars and famines. This is why the world fights with itself because someone is always going to rule. The question is, who? And as we see in this text, this, his government and the peace thereof will increase in such a way that it will have no end. And so this kingdom 
is the victorious kingdom. This kingdom is the one that will establish its rule and reign over all the earth. There will be no rivals at the last. But Jesus will have dominion forever over the entire cosmos. It's inevitable. It's inevitable. Consider Psalm 2. The psalmist writes, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. That's Psalm 2, verses 7 through 9. This son must rule and reign for him to be mighty God. He will have dominion. He will have dominion. There's even a hint of this global dominion, I think, at the start of the chapter. Verse 9, excuse me, chapter 9 starts with this, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. This is primarily a promise that the Messiah, the gospel, really would be proclaimed in all the territories of Israel. Because beyond the Jordan, you had tribes still. And yet, because of Solomon, back to our little history lesson, this area became intermingled with Gentiles. And so, this is why Samaria, Samaritans, became a thing. That we see this ethnic conflict later in the New Testament. Jews didn't like Samaritans. They were, they were mixed, for lack of a better word. It was egregious to them. And yet, in this promise that the gospel would be proclaimed to the corners of the tribal allotments, even across the Jordan, and specifically calling the Jordan River the Galilee of the nations, there's a hint, there's a hint that the light to come would not stop with Jews, but it would extend to Gentile neighbors. And we know it didn't stop with them either, but it continued and it continued. And so... We know that Jesus' dominion will not be limited or restrained to national Israel, but will extend to every corner of the earth. And all the nations will be given to him as his heritage. Every single one of them. And as we saw in verse 7, it will continue to increase. It will continue to increase. This is for our hope and for our joy. There are many Christian traditions in the West that assume it always gets worse. We just have to wait it out. Or it only will ever get worse. We simply have to wait it out. And it is true. It is true. The scripture does promise that some people will go from bad to worse in the last days. But it's also a promise, particularly in the older covenants, that Righteousness will be established, and this throne will continue to grow. 
this kingdom will continue to increase until one day there will be no end. Nothing will no longer be in the way. There will be no rival. And we get to experience that today because we know the promised son has come. He has come. Jesus has come. And his dominion will not be thwarted. It will not be quenched. He will rule and reign. And he wants to rule and reign now through us, his people. We, as citizens of the country to come, we now invoke, if you will, the kingdom coming and bearing on earth through, through how we live. So when we pray, Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, it's a prayer not just for something to happen regardless of us, but for us to be participants in the inauguration of the kingdom of God. To say, Lord, we desire that you rule and reign now in our midst because we believe you will rule at the last. Therefore, we live accordingly. I will not live as a stranger and an exile to that land, but I will live as a citizen now because you have dominion. It's inevitable. You are the king of glory. You are mighty God. And so I give my life, I give my responsibilities, I give my all to you that you would use me for the inauguration of your kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. It's a missional prayer that Christ would rule and reign in our homes and in our workplaces, that he would rule in the lives of our neighbors through us, that he would have his rightful place as king over all the earth in the here and now as we wait for the then to come, for the last day. This authority, this government will increase throughout all the earth until all his enemies are made his footstool. That's Psalm 110. I would admonish or encourage really all of you to, to read these kingly messianic psalms to see the authority of the Son, this mighty God. And I want us now to look briefly at Zechariah chapter 14. This is a a prophetic promise concerning the last day. Zechariah writes, On that day there shall be no light, cold, or frost, and there shall be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time there shall be light. If it sounds reminiscent to Revelation, it's supposed to. On that day living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one, and his name one. The whole land shall be turned into a plain from Geba to Ramon, south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem shall remain aloft on its site from the gate of Benjamin to the place of the former gate to the corner gate, and from the tower of Hananel to the king's winepresses. And it shall be inhabited, for there shall never again be a decree of utter destruction. Jerusalem shall dwell in security. And so, from, from of old, the people of God have been longing for this day when God 
would be king over his people forever. And that Jerusalem itself would contain within her, in her the light of God himself. But it doesn't just stop there. As I mentioned earlier, the salvation, the deliverance of God's people always coincides with the judgment against her enemies. The destruction of the unrighteous. Zechariah continues, so don't miss this. In order for Jerusalem to dwell securely, this must happen. And this shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples that wage war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they are still standing on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets and their tongues will rot in their mouths. The enemy will be forever thwarted. Merry Christmas. We have a true salvation that stands forever because this promised son is mighty God. He will deliver us. He will establish us. He will walk in our midst as God himself and he will rule and reign in our midst and nothing will stop him. Nothing will stop him. This last line in verse 7 of Isaiah 9, I love. It says, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. He yearns to accomplish this. He has a passion to accomplish the salvation of his people in the establishment of his kingdom. That's what zeal is. It's this burning desire, this zeal, passion, desire. It's just this, I mean, we know what it is, but it's, it's hard to describe because it itself is the description. And this is the desire that God has to save his people to the uttermost and to establish us with him forever. And so we can trust that there will be no end to his kingdom for he himself is eternal and will save his people unto eternity. Do you see that? For his kingdom to last forevermore, he himself must be eternal, and he himself must save his people unto eternity. He'd have no kingdom if he was by himself. But the promise is that he will rule and reign in our midst forever. So in conclusion, I want us to consider these three things and then have three applications for them. As we meditate on Jesus, the promised son, this Advent season. Let's take him at his word and let's take him at his name. He is mighty God, the hero of all the earth. He is our deliverer who saves us from all our enemies, including sin and death. Therefore, therefore we trust him for he is good and the only one who can save us to the uttermost. He is God incarnate. In seeing Jesus the Son, we have seen God the Father. He came to dwell among us so that at the last, all things might be restored as they were at the first. Therefore, we delight in him because he is who we were made for. He is the fulfillment of every longing. We were made for him. And so let us delight in him. And lastly, he is king over all the earth. 
Jesus will rule over all the nations and over all creation because he is the rightful heir to the throne of David and the throne of God. Therefore, we obey him because he is Lord over us and he is worthy of all honor and glory. As we conclude, and I want to read this one little benediction for the sermon so you guys can come up. It's, in, it's just this. In Romans 11, Paul writes this, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, you are the promised son. You are mighty God. We trust that you are our deliverer. You are truly deity in the flesh and that you will have dominion at the last. I pray that you would stir within us rejoicing, thanksgiving, and uh, just real lasting joy because our King has come. You have been faithful to your promises and you have been faithful to us. Your covenants have been fulfilled and you continue to fulfill the new covenant in being with us now through your spirit and sanctifying us through your word and through your spirit as we wait for the last day to see you face to face. I pray that we would choose, Lord, to be satisfied in you this season. Would the realness of your joy and delight in saving us be felt? I pray that we wouldn't be uh, caught by the distractions of the world, nor by even the hard circumstances that are real and that bring about real grief, but rather would we cast all these things onto you because we know you care for us and that Christmas is truly a time to rejoice that you have come and will come again. We praise your name because you are Lord of Lords. You are God of gods. There is none like you. And so we trust you. We love you and we obey you today. Amen.